to this passage of scripture. Let's just pray once briefly that the Lord will open our eyes. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. So, Jesus had this to say about Jonah. Jesus answered, that was to some scribes and Pharisees, Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Well, I've given away the end of the story now. We haven't got to the bit about the Ninevans repenting, but uh, actually that's not the end of the story. Um, but uh, Jesus obviously saw Jonah as pointing forward to himself. But who is this fishy character, Jonah? In fact, as I already mentioned, Jonah and Nahum are often studied together because between them they describe God's delayed but ultimately final judgment on the Assyrian city of Nineveh. And it's quite important to understand the, they're in the context of the political history of the um, ancient Near East at the time. We're talking around the 6th century, uh, yeah, century BC, 7th century BC, yeah. <laughs> Right, around that time. Um, which was immensely complicated. If you read the, the book of Isaiah, you get a, a hint of this. But the, the situation, the politics of that time were very complicated with shifting alliances and complicated empires, one which would rise to some power and then decline again. So let's see if we can set... Jonah and Nahum into what I put up there on the slide is a very simplified, <laughs> a really oversimplified version of this timeline, but it does have the main points on. Um, there had been settlement at Nineveh on the Tigris, probably as far back as the third millennium, really from the beginning of um, recorded history. Uh, but and there had been a, a first Assyrian Empire in the second century BC, but it had gone into decline. But then, towards the end of the second century BC, um, well, uh, the, the, the city of Nineveh had begin, begun to grow with a temple to the goddess Ishtar built near the Tigris River. Uh, we'll learn more about Ishtar when we go on to study Nahum, but that it was a center of worship of the goddess Ishtar. And then in the ninth century, the Assyrian Empire revived and the great city Nineveh grew up around the temple of Ishtar. That's, um, it's usually, historians call it the Neo-Assyrian Empire because it was, in a sense, the second Assyrian Empire. It was probably the largest city in the world at the time, Nineveh, um, although it's thought it didn't actually become the imperial capital until about 700 BC in the reign of Sennacherib, which was after the time of Jonah, actually, which does raise one or two minor qu 
questions of, of why the king was in the city at the time, among other things. But um, we'll come to that when we come to that chapter. And so the Neo-Assyrian Empire rose around the, um, around the 9th century BC. Um, it was growing all during the time of um, the, between 800 and 700 BC. Um, it really re reached the height of its power around 700 BC. But by that time it had made a lot of enemies, um, including in the end Egypt uh, when Thebes was destroyed, 6663 BC. And so, in fact, in 612 BC, the city of Nineveh was destroyed by the Babylonians, in fact. It was the Babylonians, in the end, who conquered the city. In fact, they destroyed it so thoroughly that for, um, for nearly for 2,000 years, nobody knew where it had been. Um, Greek and Roman historians obviously had records of it, but they said nobody knew where it was, and um, some even doubted that it had actually existed. And uh, neither did the um, Islamic scholars, historians of around the 9th and to 10th century AD. They didn't know where it was either. In fact, it wasn't until the late 18th century and, uh, and the 19th century that the position of Nineveh on the Tigris was finally identified by archaeologists. And now much of it has been excavated, including, interestingly, a mound where legend has it that Jonah is buried. I don't know how much credence one can give to that legend, but uh, there is a legend that Jonah is actually buried in Nineveh. Um, Nahum, as we will see when we get there, cursed the city. And it seems that the curse of Nahum continues to have its effect right through into the 21st century because now the Isil are busy destroying the ancient ruins of Nineveh as being un-Islamic. Anyway, that's a brief history of the city itself. How do these um, prophets fit into it? Well, first of all, we need to mention that after the time of Solomon that we were hearing about this morning, after the reign of Solomon, the nation of Israel split into two parts. Um, the southern kingdom, which became known as Judah, was the tribe of Judah, tribe of Benjamin and most of the Levites, who of course were centered around the temple in, in Jerusalem. The other tribes formed what became known as the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, Jonah himself was a citizen of the northern kingdom. In fact, right up to the north part of the northern kingdom in Galilee. He was the only Galilean prophet, which again is one of the many, many parallels between the life of Jonah and, and Jesus. In 2 Kings 14.25, there is a reference to the prophet Jonah, um, referring to the reign of Jeroboam II, you really need to look it up, but it's just useful for dating purposes. Um, because it means that Jonah must have been around um, around 780 to 755 BC. So the prophet, prophecy of Jonah is normally dated to around 780 and 755 BC. 
How do we know when Nahum was around, and I'll mention the whole timeline while we're looking at it. Um, we know when Nahum was around because um, Nahum mentions the destruction of Thebes in Egypt as a past event. And um, the Assyrians had indeed destroyed the city of Thebes in 663 BC. So Nahum must have been writing after that and probably when it was still a um, you know, fairly recent mem memory, it was still up in people's minds. And so the prophecy of Nahum is usually dated to around 660 to 630 BC. Clearly he must have been around before the um, time of uh, the actual destruction of the city in 612. So um, now, how did these, um, the Assyrian Empire relate to the two kingdoms, the, the northern and southern kingdoms? Um, the northern kingdom of Israel made an alliance actually with the various other kingdoms against the Assyrians. Um, and in fact, the southern kingdom of Judah tried, well, to some extent did make an alliance with Assyria and it got, all got very, very complicated. So the politics of that age were incredibly complicated. But to, um, just to cut it short, as it were, in 722 BC, the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. And that's pretty much all you hear of it, really. It more or less disappeared from history. And at the time, the, as I say, the southern kingdom had actually made an alliance with Assyria and more or less became a, a vassal kingdom. And Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, the king of Judah, um, had originally been a vassal king of um, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, the emperor of Assyria. But he, um, probably at the instigation of the Babylonians or the Egyptians, or possibly both, he actually rebelled against Assyria, leading to an Assyrian invasion. But the... Um, and the whole of Judah was ravaged, and the, the second city, Judah, second city of Lachish, was indeed destroyed, taken and destroyed by the Assyrians. Um, as you can see on the frieze at the British Museum, if you go and go to the British Museum. But famously, Sennacherib failed to take Jerusalem itself. The country was ravaged, but Jerusalem and Hezekiah survived. And Isaiah records the destruction of the Assyrian army outside the city overnight and without a battle. And whether this was what destroyed, actually destroyed the army, we don't know whether it was disease or infighting or some other cause is not recorded, but Isaiah was quite clear that in attributing this to God's intervention, he said simply that God destroyed the army of the Assyrians outside the um, outside Jerusalem. And this occurred in, in 701 BC. And in fact, Judah survived the fall of the Assyrian Empire and of course was not destroyed until a century, over a century later by the Babylonians. So that gives you a bit of the history. Yes. Now of course there is quite a historical irony with the story of the prophet Jonah. Because in saving Nineveh, Jonah actually led 
indirectly to the destruction in 722 BC of his own kingdom of Israel. And in fact, some people have suggested because of this that perhaps actually this is not literal history, but it's intended as a parable, possibly written by Jonah himself or perhaps by somebody writing after the fall of Israel. And indeed, I'm not sure one should totally reject this theory out of hand because the nature of the text is quite strange. The way it's written, it's quite sort of mythic in the way it's written. But there are also strong arguments against the view that it was written as a parable. It certainly was regarded as historical by the ancient Jewish scholars. And perhaps most importantly of all, um, those words of Jesus, that the men of Nineveh will stand up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. So if this wasn't literal history, it's rather difficult to make sense of that <laughs> statement. So it has been said that no one's going to go to the state defending the historicity of Jonah, but I would recommend to you that you do regard it as historical truth. I think it probably is meant to be historical truth. So we might put it, it's not myth presented as history, but rather it's history presented as myth. The history is presented to us not because of its particular historical importance, but because of what it tells us about the Lord and what it tells us about Jonah the prophet and what it tells us about um, God's concern for all the people of this world. So ultimately the message of Ju Jonah is the message of grace. But we find that balanced when we come to Nahum of the message of judgment. So before we look at particular at this first chapter, let's just um, point out some of the parallels between Jonah and Jesus. Remember that Jesus was also sent with a message to those who didn't really want to hear it. Jesus again slept in a boat through, the, through a storm. The sailors of Jonah's boat were probably Phoenicians and they would benefit uh, indirectly from Jonah's rejection of, initial rejection of the word of God. And we remember that for, for Jesus, a Phoenician woman would benefit indirectly from the Israelite rejection of the word of God. And it was a Phoenician woman whose, um, Jesus, whose daughter Jesus healed. And um, Jesus said, not right to take, take the bread that should go to the Israelites and throw it to the dogs. But the woman said, even the dogs get the crumbs that fall off the table. And uh, indeed, these Phoenician sailors in Jonah's time were also to find grace because of the rejection, in this case, of, of the prophet initially of rejecting the word of God. Ultimately, of course, Jonah was prepared to give up his life for others, as we saw in verse 12. And he was figuratively, at least, resurrected after three days. And Jesus himself called this the sign of Jonah. This is mentioned actually three times in the Gospel, in Luke 11, and actually twice in Matthew, in chapter 12, and again in chapter 16. And later in that chapter, when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah... Peter is described there, and I think only there, as Peter, son of Jonah. 
Presumably his father really was called Jonah. But at that particular point, with already referred to the prophet Jonah, um, Matthew obviously thought it was meant, or Jesus perhaps in his own words, thought it was worth pointing out that Peter was the son of Jonah and indeed that the sign of Jonah perhaps applied in a sense to, to Peter as well. He was also going to be a prophet who was going to have his struggles. But if um, Jonah is a picture of Jesus, then equally Jonah is also a picture of rebellious Israel. Because Jonah's problem was not that he was scared to go to Nineveh. Those of us who uh, might be old enough to remember the old Sunday school lessons or perhaps were taught the story of Jonah at school may remember actually being told that Jonah didn't go to Nineveh because he was frightened. But it's simply wrong. I mean, it's clear from verse 12 that Nineveh was actually a, a man, uh, sorry, Jonah was a man of considerable personal courage. He, he wasn't a coward by any means. He wasn't frightened of death. Why was um, Jonah so keen not to go to Nineveh? Well, actually, he tells us in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, I was greatly displeased and became angry. And he, I, Jonah prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, this, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah's problem, unlike most of us who preach the word of God one way or another, Jonah's problem was not that he thought he would not be listened to, but that he was afraid he would be listened to. Jonah didn't want the Ninevites to find grace, didn't want, to escape. He didn't want them to escape the destruction. Jonah thought that God should only be interested in Israel and that if he had any message to the Gentiles, it should be just a message of wrath and judgment. And that was in spite of God's promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed. See, Jonah had a sneaking suspicion that God was into compassion and he didn't really like that. And even that is a, a warning to us, is it? Do we think that way about those outside the church of God? Do we hope that they will get what they deserve? Or do we agree with the words of Peter? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The Lord was going to give Nineveh a warning, uh, give them a chance to repent. But Jonah was going to find this a very hard lesson to learn, as we'll see as we lead on in the story. But God starts the lesson here with these superstitious sailors. So let's now just get a few lessons out of the first chapter itself. And in fact, there's just six lessons that I'd like us to see from this chapter. First of all, the Lord was not only in Israel. Secondly, that disobedience has consequences. Thirdly, that God's plan to save cannot be overturned. Fourthly, that a cry for mercy is actually the only viable plan. Fifthly, that a sacrifice is necessary. And sixthly, that God answers a plea for mercy. So first of all, let's remind ourselves that the Lord was not only in Israel. 
Where was it that Jonah was going to? Well, he tells us he bought a ticket for Tarshish. Actually, nobody to this day knows where Tarshish was. It's generally assumed to have been somewhere in the western Mediterranean, possibly in Spain, as it's suggested on this map here. Um, could have been on the uh, northern coast of Africa. Nobody knows where it was. Basically, it had two things in its favour as far as Jonah was concerned. It was in diametrically opposite direction to Nineveh. Nineveh lay to the east of, of the Kingdom of Israel and Tarshish lay far to the west. And it was as far as you could get and basically still be in the realm of civilization. It was um, almost sort of semi-mythical. You might perhaps think of people's attitude to China, in a Westerner's attitude to China 500 years or so ago. People did know that China and Japan were real places after all the explorers had been there and come back. But they, for most people, they were just hopelessly far away and almost places of myth and legend. Um, and to the inhabitants of, the, um, of Israel and that area, I think Tarshish must have been very much like that. You know, th th there was a place there somewhere way, way over to the west, but basically if you went past Tarshish, you might as well have fallen off the edge of the world. Um, that was absolutely the edge of human civilization. And in fact, um, the, the term a ship of Tarshish became a sort of technical term for a, a long-range trading vessel. Um, we've come across that in Isaiah and other, other prophets. talks about ships of Tarshish. They were the sort of super tankers and container freighters of their day. Because Tarshish was as far as you could get and still be in the realm of civilization. And of course, Jonah didn't really want to go to Tarshish. The point was that it was the farthest place west he could book a ticket for. And he told us what his aim was in verse 3. His aim was to flee from the presence of the Lord. But he had forgotten the words of David, which we read in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If Jonah would remember those words, perhaps he wouldn't have did, done what he did, but he didn't, and so he headed for Tarshish. But even if Jonah had made it to Tarshish, he still wasn't going to escape the presence of the Lord because the Lord was indeed present in the Mediterranean and on that ship. And the second lesson is that disobedience has consequences. And sin has consequences not only for Jonah, but for those around him as well. And when the people of God, and particularly those whose job it is to declare the word of God, act in a disobedient or unwise manner, we must expect a bad result. Sin causes trouble and not just for the sinner. In this case, Jonah's sin was going to embroil the ship's crew in a storm and put them in peril of their, li peril of their lives. So just Jonah had to learn that just as he could not flee from the Lord, 
so he couldn't disobey the Lord with impunity either. He was going to suffer himself, and so were those around him. Disobedience has consequences. And thirdly, Jonah had to learn that God's plan to save cannot be overturned, not even by Jonah's disobedience. In spite of all Jonah's efforts, God was actually going to bring good out of these, this situation. Now you and I know that uh, storms are caused by things like the jet stream and the uh, gulf stream and so on, aren't they? But these, but these sailors were a superstitious lot. And so when the storm came up, they decided that some god must have been offended. And of course, in this particular case, they were quite right. And they, when they discovered that the God in question was Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, they must have been particularly worried. They must have heard stories of the way Yahweh had dealt with his enemies in time past. And they were very worried indeed. They'd heard of the destruction that he'd wreaked perhaps on the Egyptians when the Egyptian cavalry had been drowned. Perhaps they'd even heard of the fall of the city of Jericho. They knew the power of this particular God. But what they didn't know, and they didn't know because Jonah had failed to tell them, that the Lord was God, a God not only of anger, but also of compassion. So these poor sailors were caught in a situation not of their own making. What were they to do? If they keep Jonah on board, everyone was going to drown anyway. If they threw a prophet of the Lord overboard, who knows what worse disaster might befall. But God wasn't going to be stymied by Jonah's failure. He forced Jonah, however reluctantly, to bring the word of God onto that ship. And ultimately that word was not a word of judgment, but a word of salvation. God was going to save those sailors not just from shipwreck, but also from their own idolatry and superstition. But what should they do? Well, there was only one viable plan. There was only one thing that was going to save the lives of those sailors. And you notice that, commendably, I suppose, actually the sailors tried to save themselves and Jonah. They tried to run ashore, to row ashore. I suppose if you're in the shipping business, then uh, throwing your passengers overboard is not particularly good for trade. But um, it was never going to work. In fact, their only hope really was to resign themselves to the will of God and to appeal for him for mercy. In verse 14, they were caught either way. They couldn't appeal to the Lord's covenant because they were idolaters and had sacrificed to other gods. They couldn't even, like Rahab, claim that they'd succored God's people. In fact, they were just about to do exactly the opposite, throw one of them overboard. All they could do was acknowledge that the Lord was sovereign and ask for forgiveness and pray that they wouldn't be made guilty of the blood of Jonah. And did you notice that their prayer was answered? They didn't incur guilt. They didn't incur guilt for killing Jonah because Jonah survived. 
And so they avoided the blood guilt of killing Jonah. Lesson five is that a sacrifice is necessary. Whatever can be said against Jonah, I have to say at least he was prepared to accept the blame for his own disobedience and flight. He said, I know it was because of me that this storm has come upon you. He admitted his failings to the sailors, to the sailors and thus effectively to God also. And in a sense, his sin was being imputed to these sailors. They were suffering for, for his sin. They'd become involved in his sin in taking him away from the presence of the Lord. And Jonah was able to see the injustice of that. And so Jonah was prepared to give up his own life to save theirs. But the law of Moses, of course, actually forbade human sacrifice, but this was different because this was a, a voluntary sacrifice by Jonah himself. But actually, of course, it wasn't really the sacrifice of Jonah that was going to do any good for these um, sailors. The death of Jonah wasn't even enough to pay for his own sins, let alone the sins of the sailors. And so, as we said, like the sacrifice of Abraham's son Isaac, the Lord in the end didn't accept Jonah's offer of his own life for the lives of the sailors because Jonah received his life back from the grave just as Isaac had. But although neither he nor the sailors could have known it, in offering himself voluntarily, he was pointing towards that true and effective sacrifice of the true saviour, Jesus. Jesus also gave up his life voluntarily, but his life was of sufficient value to cover the sin of Jonah and to cover the sin of those Phoenician sailors and to cover all those Old Testament believers and to cover those people in Nineveh who repented and indeed all of those we read of in Revelation where it says, After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And it would appear that part of that great crowd are those Phoenician sailors because it says at the end of the chapter that they made vows to the Lord. So presumably they repented of their idolatry and made vows to the Lord instead. So somewhere among that great crowd perhaps are those Phoenician sailors and they are indeed able to say from their personal experience that salvation belongs to our God. And that's the sixth lesson, that God answers a plea for mercy. Those sailors are part of that great multitude and God heard their prayer and taught them the fear of the Lord. And they abandoned those powerless gods who weren't able to save them and turned instead to the living God. And it might be less obvious or dramatic for us, but unless we have called on the name of the Lord, we're just in the same precarious position as they were, and as the people of Nineveh were. Like them, like those sailors, like, as we'll see later, the people of Nineveh, 
A cry for mercy is the only plan to adopt. And we learn that through the death of Christ, not through the death of Jonah really, but through the death of Christ, God will answer such a prayer. And we remember also, if like Jonah we're already numbered among the people of God, and yet we do sin, and yet God will answer a prayer of repentance and call us back. And it's that prayer of repentance of Jonah that we're going to look at next week. Because God was not yet done with Jonah. But let us just remind ourselves that if we haven't done so already, we are like those sailors in grave danger. And we need to call not on any other God, because it just doesn't work, but to call on the name of the Lord. And we can do that through the name of Jesus. So let's sing another hymn of...